Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you again for joining me this week as we inch ever so closer to actual real NBA basketball being played and I'm getting excited about it. I pretty much started this or the the podcast last week pretty much not complaining but essentially saying that I've enjoyed my time away from basketball yet here I am as I guess as we move closer towards preseason and the actual season I've actually become excited all of a sudden and I think that's because of it's probably got to do with Bulls Media Day. I, th- I think once you see the the Bulls players in their jerseys and, and the fact that you know we're only a week away from basketball, it's kind of hits you that it's right around the corner. And I guess from that moment, seeing Wendell Carter Jr. taking those snaps, Larry Market, and even Jabari Parker, Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, all of the guys, even <laughs> Robin Lopez with that goatee that he had on. I guess it's starting to feel real, uh, starting to feel real, and I'm and I'm excited again. So it's good to be. Feeling this way about basketball again, and Bulls basketball is very much around the corner. So, given all that, it probably makes sense to actually talk Bulls basketball. Last week was pretty much all about Jimmy Butler, but I think it's time to get, dedicate some time here to the actual team at hand, the Chicago Bulls, and to do a bit of a season preview podcast. So, this will this one will be fun. I'm looking forward to it, going through the ins and outs of the team in terms of how. The roster is shaped up, how we expect individual players to perform, how we think the team will, I guess, navigate itself through offense and defense, how we uh, expect the team to sort of project throughout the season. And rather than just giving you my views, I thought I'd have two guests on today to to talk balls with. And it's always fun, always, obviously, talking balls, but more so with these two guys in particular. I've had them on before as part of a crossover podcast before and I, I wanted to do it again and it felt right to do it here as the uh, season preview pod. So joining me today are Will Gottlieb and Stefan No from The Athletic, two of my favorite writers and two of my favorite guys to converse with on online amongst the Bulls community. So I'm really happy to have you both on, guys. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing it's good. good to be good to be back in Bulls land. It's good to have you guys back on, being a little a little while since we did a, a crossover pod, I guess, but um, 
the time is right to do one now, given that the season is very much, uh, very much approaching. We've got Bulls basketball less than a week. Preseason is here very shortly. But um, look, I-, I wanted to talk Bulls basketball with you guys again, and so thank you for jumping on. But before we get to it, Stefan, I wanted to address some concerns I had with your appearance on CBE Fred's <laughs> oh, podcast <no>. last week. <laughs> I think you know what I'm referring to there, Stefan. What was what was the deal? Did you let him influence you there? You know, once you get on the big red bus, some weird stuff can happen. So I I apologize, Mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can make fun of Fred as much as you want on here to get back at him. Yeah, enough. I fully understand. It, it can be a weird experience jumping on that crazy big red bus or whatever that hell that thing is. But <laughs> nah, it's all good. All good. I just thought I'd get that little that little one in there but uh, look as I said I appreciate you guys jumping on I want to talk balls I want to talk basketball and I want to talk the season ahead and I want to do a preview pod and I want to touch on as many subjects as we can so let's get straight into it and let's start holistically and think about it from a team-wide perspective so I want to talk strengths and weaknesses of the team Uh, I, I guess we have general perceptions of what the team will be what their strengths and weaknesses are but Generally, expect, uh, generally speaking, rather, what do you expect them to excel in in terms of both offense and maybe even defense? They may have areas which they could potentially excel in. What, what do you think this team generally will be uh, quite good at? So, obviously, we, you know, our kind of brand is to focus on the weaknesses. We're going to start with positives here. There are, I think, a couple of areas, uh, just kind of looking through some of the stats last year, where I think they can be... Um, you know, if not in the top half of the league, in the top 10. Um, Three-point attempts last year, obviously they were not as good at actually converting on those shots, but I think that's definitely something they should be striving for within their offense. They were six last year at 21.1 per game, um, and I can see them doing even more of that this year. Um, they were eighth in assist percentage at 60.7, so that's really good, and uh, top half of the league, 14th in assist-to-turnover ratio. Um, we talked a lot last year about how they were getting those assists and like if those were actually representative of, you know, good plays and, and good playmaking. Um, we'll have to see if that rolls over. But I think, you know, assists are great, uh, generally speaking. So that should be something that they strive for in the offense. And I think just with, you know, this is something we'll get into later, but all the mouths that, they, that they'll have to feed, um, moving the ball should be a really good indicator of, you know, how well their offense is flowing. Um, I think they'll be a good defensive rebounding team. Uh, They were second last year in defensive rebounding rate, um, and I think they'll push the ball very quickly. They were 10th in pace last year. I think they'll try to do even better at that. Yeah, I think those are all pretty safe bets. Uh, What I'm looking forward to the most as far as strengths on this team is their athleticism, especially in the starting lineup. If you look at Dunn, Levine, Parker and Markinen, all those guys are plus athletes. Uh, I think a lot of people slept on Markinen in particular. I mean, he he is a very good athlete. They should come up with some pretty fun to watch highlights in transition, which you know Hoiberg said he's he's going to push transition, which he's kind of said every year. We'll see if it actually happens this year. But I think just from a watchability standpoint, that's something that uh, I'm excited. I think. It, they might not, I mean, I don't think the consistency will be there where they're going to be using that to get wins every single night, but it should be a strength as far as, you know, coming up with some good highlights night to night. Yeah, they were they were uh, 14th in the league last year in fast break points. That was another one that I had down. 
And I think you're absolutely right. They're going to try to do even more of that and hopefully succeed. Yeah, I think transition offense is probably the most obvious thing which this team hopefully will be good at. It's probably the most obvious one that they should be good at, at least. We'll see if it carries carries out in the regular season. But beyond that, once I've started thinking about it, and, and Stefan, you hit the, the nail on the head as to the point I was going to raise, just the general athleticism on the team. And I guess my next question is, is this the most, most athletic Bulls team that we've seen in quite some time? Obviously... You know, back in 2010, 2011, etc., we had Derrick Rose, who was a, a freak himself, but he wasn't necessarily surrounded by, I guess, big-time prime athletes, whereas now, whilst the Bulls may not have a, a nuclear athlete in the same sense that Derrick Rose was, they seem to have more of a collective talent group that is quite an athletic team. So I guess generally thinking about it, and, and this is a question that I just thought of in this, uh, just now and probably one I haven't really considered before, but is this one of the more athletic Bulls team that we've seen in the last 10, 15 years? I mean, that was quite a jab at Carlos Boozer and Keith Bogans, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just so, all sorry, across... Booze <laughs> Cruz, we love you. Um, all across the board, I think, you know, in the starting lineup at least, uh, with the exception of Lopez, who at some point we would expect to get supplanted by Wendell Carter, who's uh, another plus athlete. Yeah, I think there's athletes all all along, and I think that can really benefit them, um, not only in, in transition offense, but in, in half-court offense as well. The, the divide between the starters and the bench has always been really interesting to me. They've been completely different units with completely different strengths and weaknesses pretty much the whole time Hoiberg has been here. So I think, yeah, in the starting lineup, you can get pretty excited about the athleticism. But then on the bench, like there are some very <laughs> minus athletes in that group. I think Campaign is pretty solidly below average. Valentine, obviously, below average. Holiday, he's okay. Bobby Portis, I would say he's a below average athlete. And that really hurts those guys in a lot of different areas. So, um, yeah, the, the question about athleticism on the roster just depends on like where exactly you're looking on this roster. Yeah, I mean that, that that that's a good point too. So hopefully, hopefully some of those guys aren't getting too many minutes because we want to see this young team out there running and and really getting into transition. And and even if they aren't necessarily winning a lot of games, at least producing a fun style of basketball, which I think should be achievable. But we've talked about some of the the general positives that we expect this or strengths of of this team. But flipping flipping that on its head and look, the obvious answer here in terms of some potential weaknesses is not is defense. But can we boil, uh, boil that down a little bit more or, or even suggest other areas where this team may, I guess, be weak on? Uh, yeah, I mean, the defense is definitely, you know, going to be an issue. They were, uh, where is it, Tw- like 29th or 28th in defensive rating last year. Um, and I don't expect that to get much better with, you know, losing David Nwaba, who's their, probably their best perimeter defender last year. Um, and then, you know, more minutes, presumably for guys like Bobby Fortis and Denzel Valentine. Um, but aside from that, I think, you know, their biggest weakness was just like converting shots. They were 29th in effective field goal percentage and true shooting percentage, like, they did not get to the free throw line at all. They were 29th in free throw attempt rate. Um, they need to do a better job at both of those things if they want, if they have any hope of like getting past this, you know, 30 ish win mark. Yeah. Going more into the defensive weaknesses, what, what I'm really concerned about or just interested in 
is how many turnovers they forced. They've been one of the worst teams in that in Hoiberg's era, and I think that's what's been hampering his offense a lot is at Iowa State, you know, they're just the whole offense was based on transition and early offense. The Bulls tried to change their defensive schemes around last year, do more aggressive blitzing, double teaming the ball handler on pick and rolls to try to force turnovers. It didn't work. Uh, they're going to a more uh, they're going to a more switch oriented defense, which theoretically should result in less turnovers, even less turnovers. So, if uh, they continue to not really create live ball opportunities, I'm curious to see if they can still generate these transition attempts and early offense and and help the offense out a little bit. Yeah, I mean that's certainly a good point. And look. I, the reason why I got you guys on is is because you're super smart and it makes my life so much easier because I don't really have to answer anything because you guys pretty much take all my answers <laughs> anyway. But to reiterate what, what you said, Will, that was pretty much exactly what I was going to say. The first thing that jumps out in my mind, apart from just defensively thinking about a weakness of the team, is the ability to get to the free throw line. And that was one of the reasons why I was kind of disappointed to see David Nwaba go because he was one of the guys particularly in transition, but even in half court, they could actually get to the free throw line. And Zach Levine, that's never been a big part of his game. Traditionally, not not a huge part of Chris Dunn's game. And certainly the same for Jabari Parker. So it'll be interesting to see if they can actually generate some of those easy scores at the free throw line, which I guess links back to your, your other point, Will, that this team hasn't necessarily been good at creating efficient offense, which free throws obviously can be. So... I think if they can really flip that over from a weakness to at least being average, then that can change a lot of things for this team. But again, time will tell. But speaking, I guess, holistically, offensively, and I guess this has been probably one of the primary concerns ever ever since the Bulls sort of paired uh, Levine with uh, Jabari Parker, obviously Larry Markin and Chris Dunn as well. But Again, general question, are, are there too many mouths to feed on offense and, and will this team find a way to, to buy into a, a team concept when they probably have young guys that we should traditionally expect or assume them to be more focused on their own individual game? The big word during uh, yesterday's media day was sacrifice. Hoiberg kept on mentioning that guys are going to have to sacrifice. He pointed to that stretch last year when Miritich came back and the team went 14 and 11 with Miritich, he said that, you know, on any given night, a different player would step up. You saw that a lot with the Thibodeau Bulls too, where just random role players would explode for huge games. So I think that's the hope here is that uh, the Bulls get contributions from different guys on every night. To me, that's like not, I, I don't really know how much I'm buying that. I think that the idea that, uh, the Bulls have these selfish players. I don't really buy that either. Like, I think that people think Jabari Parker is much more ball dominant than he actually is. Like, he didn't really have that many plays called for him in Milwaukee. He didn't have like a ridiculous usage. To me, the one guy that you really have to be concerned about is Levine. Levine definitely was chucking last year. He was missing Markinen and other teammates that were wide open. If Hoiberg can get buy-in from Levine, then I think they'll be okay. At least I hope they will. But he's really uh, the key for me. Um, I'll, I was going to get into this later, but I think Levine has also shown in his career before his ACL when he was with Minnesota uh, that he can be an efficient, you know, eighteen twenty point a night scorer on pretty, you know, low usage. I think he was, you know, nineteen points per game on twenty two usage. So 
I think he can do that. I think his mentality last year was much different. He knew he was not the third cog in that um, in that team, and you know he wants to be the guy in Chicago. I think the sacrifice stuff that Stefan brought up is absolutely right, and they're going to need to do that. But it's not like there's only you know forty shots per game. Like there's a hundred possessions in a game for the Bulls last year. Um, they're probably going to not be able to take as many shots as maybe he would like. I think Levine was like usage over 30 last year, um, which is like Russell Westbrook level. Um, they're going to have to pare that down a little bit, but like, I think it, it can work if that sacrifice, um, you know, comes to fruition. I think that's, you know, easier said than done, but that should be the main goal for this team. And I'm glad that that was kind of a theme from media day. Yeah, it certainly can work. I guess it's just uh, it's just a question of whether they're willing they're willing to make it work. I suppose, and it, it probably all comes back down to contracts and those sorts of things, as it always does. Obviously, Levine has just inked his four year deal, so he's probably more comfortable than others. But Jabari Parker is essentially playing on that one year deal. He probably doesn't have that same uh, level of security that Levine does. So. Whilst I share the same skepticism or concern that maybe Levine can or can't buy into that team concept, I, I'm also questioning it with, with Jabari too. Even though he's not necessarily a ball-dominant guy who's going to go out there and try to gun or take 20 or so shots, there, there are just so many agendas, individual agendas working against this team. So it'll be interesting to see how they navigate or through all that. But I, I think the key to all that is, is Chris Dunn and, and his role on on offense and whether he can sort of dictate how the things, how the offense flows, who gets their shots when and where. So, to me, he's the most important player on this Bulls roster. And so, I wanted to dive into him individually and, and start, I guess, this the next series of questions of, of just thinking about players individually and, and their upcoming season. So, let's start with Chris Dunn. And and the first question that I wanted to ask you guys about Chris Dunn, and it's been something I've been thinking about it um, from his season last season, but also projecting forward to this season is, is how much of what Dunn did last season was purely actual growth versus greater opportunity. And and I guess the reason why that's of interest to me, to me at least, is the fact that Levine is back for a full season. Jabari Parker is now in the fold. Hopefully more possessions there for Larry Markinen. So if that's all happening, what does that mean for someone like Chris Dunn, who's not great off the ball, who needs the ball in his hands, but ha- is in a scenario now where he potentially may not necessarily necessarily have to dominate the ball? So, what we saw from uh, Dunn last season was it was it purely his actual growth, or was it simply just to having more opportunity and more volume to actually do some stuff that he, uh, I guess, had uh, or registered an increase in, in numbers? I think that the improvement with Dunn. I mean, part of it definitely was that he got more minutes. He played 17 minutes as a rookie, 29 last year with the Bulls. But he did have, just putting aside the stats, he did have like very noticeable changes in his game. He looked totally lost on the court as a rookie. I mean, he was really, really bad. I don't think people realize how bad he was. He was probably like a bottom 20 player in the league. He was looking like a complete bust. And he went from there to, I would say he's maybe like a little bit below average or average as an NBA player. So you're talking about there's 450 players in the league. He probably jumped like 200 spots, which is an incredible amount of growth in one year. Um, Still needs obviously a ton of work on offense. We know his flaws. We know that his jump shot is still extremely shaky. He didn't really finish at the rim very well, but he was a lot more aggressive too. Uh, He only drove the ball 
2.9 times per game in those 17 minutes as a rookie. Drove 12.2 times in 29 minutes per game. He led the Bulls in drives last year. So you can see that he was he had a much better understanding of how to get to his spots on the court. Much more comfortable, much more aggressive in attacking. And uh, I think those are all pretty promising signs for him going into this year. Yeah, I mean, his role obviously was much bigger in Chicago than it was in Minnesota during his rookie year. Uh, but he only played 200 more minutes. So it's not like, you know, the sample of his season was like that much bigger. So I think like the improvement is absolutely true. I don't think it was just that greater opportunity. Um, agree with what Seven said about having to improve, you know, shooting at the rim, shooting from three. Um, I think the driving stuff is really big in terms of getting the free throw line where he was about 15% better. Um I think the improvement was definitely there, and I think he will need to continue to improve. Um, and I think that comes with having a more comfortable, um, you know, role and and being more confident in what you can do. I think that really helped him last year. Um, so I think they're pretty connected. Yeah, and I, and I agree. I think there is that connection. The the fact that he had that consistent role and, and that consistent time at point guard, and and the ball was consistently in in his hand. He was able to create a lot of the, the offense in, in a sense last season. I think that enabled him to grow, but I just question within this squad coming up uh, for, for this season, if his role were to change, how does his, how does his game change from there? How does he fit in that? So he, he is a guy that needs a ball in his hands because he's not terribly good on off ball. He's not a great shooter. We all know that. So if if Dunn isn't leading the offense and he's only taking or he's only a small piece in it, can he be effective in that role? That you know, in a specific role that doesn't require him to be ball dominant, or because of his limitations, will the balls need to give him a a dominant ball handling role to to try to make him as effective as possible? Well, I think for him, you know, not only does he need the ball in his hands in order to be effective, uh, which you know, if if you're playing him in the corner it's very easy to sag off of him and basically just have his defender be a free safety. Um, he, he, he needs the ball in his hands more though. I think to just like facilitate the offense for the other guys. I mean, we talked about how many shots Levine and, and Parker want to get up. Uh, obviously we didn't even mention Larry Markman who should be the guy getting, you know, just as many shots. Um, I think more so than his own scoring prowess, I think he needs to be really focused on like, how do I, create plays at the right times to get guys shots who need them to keep everybody involved. Like that's going to be where I think he needs to take a big step this year. I mean, he averaged six assists per game last year, but I don't think of him as somebody who's necessarily like a great point guard in the traditional sense of the word, uh, distributor, uh, facilitator, that kind of player. And I think that's where he really needs to develop his game. Oh, I think he's so dynamic on defense too. Like even if he, is in a role that isn't really great for him offensively. He is just such a game changer in how disruptive he can be, how many uh, steals he can get and fast breaks he can create by himself. So he can definitely get some of his offense in that fashion. I agree with uh, you, Will, though, that I really want to see him become a better passer and just a better point guard in general. I don't think of him as a plus passer for a point guard, and I think that really hampers Hoiberg's system. If you look at these pace and space offenses that have been so successful they are hugely influenced by the lead ball handler look at mike d'antoni's career for a perfect example of that when he had strong point guard play he looked like a genius 
when he had mediocre point guards uh, or slow players on the court, people were saying that, you know, he was one of the worst coaches in the league. He didn't finish out any of his contracts. So Dunn to me is not really that type of dynamic point guard. And I, I'm kind of doubtful that he's able to develop into that, which is like, it's just like, I don't think that he and Hoiberg are a great fit. So that's definitely something that concerns me uh, long-term. I think also like if you look at what the Bulls have been in the past and what they were trying to do, obviously like we take this from Kevin Farragan, um, the like let Jimmy be Harden type of offense that we all kind of advocated for the past couple of years. Like they're not going to do this anymore. And I don't think they should with what they have on their roster. Um, so it's not like, you know, he's, they're going to have to just trade off, uh, you know, isolating, or there's one guy that, you know, has spread pick and roll and everybody else is just kind of standing around waiting to catch kickouts to shoot threes. Like they're going to have to find ways to um, create a more, egalitarian like obviously they're not going to be the Warriors but Warriors type offense um and yeah I guess it remains to be seen whether he's the guy that can do that yeah and and, and that's a good segue into the next question I wanted to raise is because is, in my head Chris Dunn is the most important player not necessarily the best player on the roster but the most important player for for the reason Stefan mentioned there that this roster isn't necessarily filled with guys that can necessarily create um for others on the on, on yeah for others I guess that there isn't for whatever reason, that's a lot of that skill set on this roster. So Dunn, even whilst though he's not necessarily a natural or isn't necessarily great at that aspect, he is good enough, I guess, to be the the sole source of that for the Bulls at the moment. So I, I'm sort of tossing it up with with myself as to whether Dunn should have the ball in his hands a lot and really orchestrating this offense and being the lead guy on on offense, or or if that thinking is too antiquated and it should be out of Dunn's hand. Dunn's hands a little bit and taking more that egalitarian approach where we're trying to develop Levine, trying to develop Parker, even even Larry Markinas as, as ball players and, and, and playmakers for others. And, and I, I don't, I'm not sure what the right answer is to that question at the moment. It's probably something that will organically grow during the season. But what are your thoughts on, on that? Should, should Dunn be... Uh, should the offense be filtering through Dunn or should it be more of uh, an egalitarian approach where everyone is trying to get involved and, and running an offense through everyone? I think it can be both. I think, um, you know, obviously there's got to be some middle ground between those two. And I think like, I remember back uh, a while ago, like a couple of years ago, I can't remember. I think it was Bill Simmons was talking about uh, Mike Conley and his kind of like thought process being a point guard and kind of how he was like, coming up and down the floor and, and kind of thinking through his head, like who hasn't gotten a shot in a while? Like, how can I get them a shot? And I think like if, if Hoiberg can create offenses where Parker and uh, Lowry and Levine are creating misdirection to open up shots for each other and Dunn is like getting those guys the ball when they need it. I think, I think that can work. You know, a lot of the half court offense that we saw last year was Chris Dunn, Robin Lopez running these, um, pick and rolls for one of those two guys to get a mid-range jumper if that's the bulls offense then you know they're they're totally screwed it's just not going to work so i think what the bulls have done from a management perspective is they've targeted players with the ability to grab and go jabari parker he is really dangerous in the open floor when he's not a good rebounder but when he does get rebounds he's willing to bring the ball up we saw markinen do that last year Obviously, Levine is very capable of that. Dunn is capable of that. So they're building this roster. That's that's why they drafted Chandler Hutchison. 
because he's a good rebounder who, as soon as he gets it, he's going to jet down the floor. That's going to be the idea here. The Bulls need badly to limit their half-court possessions. If you look at their offensive numbers, I think they were dead last in the league in half-court offense. So I think that uh, you know this idea that Chris Dunn has to be taking the ball down every time down the court, Hoiberg is definitely going to stray away from that, and he's just going to tell the guys to look ahead to push the ball to whoever's the furthest up the court at the time. Yeah, I think that's probably the right approach. And, and and to your point, Will, it probably needs to be a blended approach. There isn't probably a singular way in this in this how this thing needs to work. It needs to be a combination of all those things. But last question on Dunn before we move on. What, what do you think he needs to do at, at a bare minimum to solidify himself as the point guard of the future? So the, the point guard position has been a carousel for the Bulls. It potentially could continue to be that. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully it ends with Chris Dunn. But... Going into 2019-20, which will be his last year of his rookie deal, what do you think Dunn needs to do in year three to to give Bulls management faith that he is, in fact, the guy that they should be continually trying to invest in next season, but potentially even beyond? What what, what are the minimums that he needs to do this season? I think that they're going to keep him no matter what. They just have so much invested in him uh, based on this Jimmy Butler trade. They've already said that they are concerned with optics in these deals. Uh, that's I mean, that they said that's part of the reason why they signed Levine to this deal. So, I mean, he would have to be just a total disaster for them to move on from him. It kind of reminds me of the situation with uh, Alfred Payton in Orlando where Scott Skiles recognized early that this is not the guy that they need to build around. But management was so invested in him. They kept on hiring these coaches. They kept on sticking with him until finally, like in year four, they realized, you know, this this guy's just not very good. <laughs> and, and they, they got a second round pick for him. <laughs> yeah, second round pick. So I don't think Dunn is at that level. Like, I think he's better than Peyton. But I, I do think that the management is just going to, like, have his back no matter what. So it's there's really nothing he can do to lose that job. Yeah, for me, regardless of, you know, what management's going to do on the floor, what I want to see from him is, like, an improved awareness of his role, of his responsibilities, of his, like, you know, ability to uh, facilitate the offense. Basically, all the things we've talked about. Obviously, he was, you know, 5% below league average finishing, uh, or 10% below league average finishing at the rim. He needs to be better at that. He needs to go to the free throw line more. He needs to be a more consistent shooter. Um, all that stuff matters, but, like, I just want to see him, like, know his role and, like, excel in that without trying to bite more than he can chew um which is what i think kind of what got him into some trouble last year yeah and and, and i for whatever reason i only just remembered this the other day but he will be 25 this season at, at some point during the season i think it's in march so whilst 25 isn't old generally relative to other nba point guards it's something to consider as well so if if dunn's going to get it together and become a not necessarily a top-line point guard, but even just an average starting NBA point guard. It sort of needs to happen now, if not next season. So time isn't necessarily on his side, but this is going to be a very important for someone like Dunn, who will be 25 years of age during the season. But whilst I necessarily think he's the most important player this season, let's move on to who I think is the best player on the te- uh, on this roster at the moment, which is, of course, Lowry Marketing. I think we more. I would assume most Bulls fans think Larry Markkinen, if he's not necessarily the best player right now, will be the best player on this roster at some point. So let's talk Larry. He's the prized possession of this rebuild. And, and I, I want to talk holistically with Larry and, and just think about some of the quotes that John Paxson had in relation to 
how the Bulls weren't necessarily going to build with Jimmy Butler, or sorry, build around Jimmy Butler, but with him. And, and thinking about that Paxson quote, I, w- I wanted to get your opinion on, on how the Bulls have sort of structured their rebuild around Larry Markinen now. Obviously, they haven't had a lot of time to build around Larry Markinen or with Larry Markinen. It hasn't been that long. They've only really had the one off-season, which is the off-season just gone past. But how do you think they've done to date in terms of building maybe not just an, just an offense around him, but even a defense. How, how do you think they've they've gone around building a roster around Larry Markman? Do you think they've been doing that or do you think they've been with uh, a sort of going with the whole with concept that they were, they were doing with Jimmy Butler? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it goes back to this kind of changed theme of this Bulls team, whereas in the past it was more focused on, uh, you know, building around Derrick Rose, building a team you know, where he could basically run pick and roll every possession, building a team around Jimmy Butler and not doing such a great job of that. Um, I think they never really wanted to do it that way. They've, they've always wanted to kind of have a core of players as opposed to one star guy. And I think that's still kind of what they're going for. That said, I think they know that he's the best piece they got back for Jimmy. Um, and I think they've wanted to like take it slow with him, not overload him. Uh, with just too much, but I think, you know, the cream rises, you know, he's, he's the guy, I think they know that. And I think they'll make him more of a featured piece this year. I know people are worried about that, but I think it's pretty obvious that he's the guy. I think they can do both. I think they can build around him and build with him at the same time. And a good example of a move they did in that regard is drafting Wendell Carter. Uh, Carter just fits so well with Mark and he masks a lot of those weaknesses Provides some rim protection where that's kind of the one thing that Lowry can't do well. He's a good rebounder, good box-out guy in that same role that Robin Lopez is that has helped Lowry's rebounding. I think that that, uh, that duo is just so interesting, uh, so modern, spread the court. They can do a lot of different things with those guys. And um, also you can see with the drafting of Chandler Hutchison, uh, that's another guy that fits in with what the Bulls want to do with this uh, switchable defense. I thought it was really interesting yesterday that Wendell Carter said of Markinen that he can guard one through five. I wouldn't be that optimistic that he can like stick with point guards that well, but it is, I think his uh, defensive versatility is a little bit undersold and Markinen, you know, he bulked up to 240 to start the season. So at least you can play him interchangeably at four and five uh, down the line. So I think the Bulls are definitely making some moves with this draft in particular to uh, make Lowry a, a core piece and try to find some guys that fit around him well. Yeah, and look, there's there's no doubt that that Lowry is a core piece, but I, I wonder if they view him as a core piece or the core piece. And I think there is a distinction in that. And I, I guess the, the reading between the lines of my own question, it was probably more to do with the Jabari Parker signing and whether that was a move that benefits Lowry or whether it is one that sort of detracts away from Lowry Markman. So that's going to be an interesting one to watch because I don't know about you guys, but I'm of the view that Jabari is more of a four than a three. So if that's the case, are you building a team around uh, Lowry or with Lowry, given that uh, someone like Jabari Parker potentially could be competing with him for minutes at that power forward position? So I guess that's where I was more angling that question. But again, it could be just a one season type deal. But I want to see what they do with Larry throughout the season, not only in terms of building the roster around him, but how he how he sort of progresses as a as a focal point. 
um, throughout the season. But moving on, given given his unbelievable rookie season, most fans are, are convinced, or at least assuming, that he'll continue to continue to develop and that his development core, uh, curve rather will continue to increase at a rate that we didn't necessarily expect it to be um, given what we saw in his, his rookie season. So should we simply assume his development curve will continue to incline at a rapid rate or is there a potential here that Larry just took off so fast that he's, his next step, I guess, maybe not necessarily a plateau, but his next step isn't as steep as what we think it may be? So I live in the Bay Area and cover the Warriors, and I was at Warriors Media Day, and they were asking questions about our favorite uh, former Bull, Jordan Bell. And uh, Steve Kerr was very, very adamant that like the biggest jump that you have is between your rookie and sophomore year. I always thought it was between your second and third year, but he was very adamant about that. And I think it makes sense, because kind of some of the reasons that he was giving, which is that like you have a full year in the weight room. I think that's something that Fred and Garpax have been talking about a lot. And I think that matters. Like that helps mask a lot of what he struggled with last year, whether it was uh, getting past guys driving or posting guys up. Um, You know, he only shot 36% on threes last year. I think a full year with the NBA three point line, um, a full year kind of knowing how to get his shots off in the offense. I think that's going to help him. Uh, and I feel like he can be a 40% shooter at some point in his career, whether or not it's this year, I'm not sure. But I think generally speaking, he is just that experience of having your rookie year behind you, um, kind of knowing the offense, knowing your role, knowing what kind of part of the future you're going to be. I think that can really help him. And I think that will cover a lot of what he struggled with last year. So I think he, obviously there could be, you know, some stagnation, but I think that he's kind of primed for another jump this year i mentioned this before but again this is where levine really worries me uh jacob bigshorn had a good story about this exact question on bloggable this morning he had a stat here uh last year markinen's usage rate was 21.7 percent when he shared the court with zach levine it dipped to 17.2 percent this was really evident if you watch the games too that Levine was looking off Markkanen a lot when he was wide open. The Bulls, they, I mean, they should have this incredible weapon when those two guys just run pick and roll and Lowry pops to the three-point line. I mean, you teams should not be able to stop that in theory, but Markkanen would be wide open on the three-point line. His man would sink down to help on Levine and Levine would just miss him. He would just try to shoot over a double team or take it to the rim uh, through a bunch of traffic. So that, I mean, that's really concerning to me and, um, I think that if that continues, then yes, Lowry will stagnate in that second year. So that's something that Hoiberg has to coach out of Levine, and Levine has to accept that Markinen is the guy, you know, so you got to get him the ball when he's open. Yeah, and that, that pretty much brings me to my next question, which is an obvious one and one that we've been asking all offseason, so that we, we may not necessarily have a firm answer on it now, but how feel, how fearful uh, should we be of Lowry Markinen being lost in the shuffle? He isn't necessarily... This uh, vocally dominant guy, I, I don't get the impression from that at least. That, that may change in year two as he gets more comfortable. But, you know, given that the ball is going to be on the perimeter a lot with Jabari, Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, these sorts of players, h- how fearful should we be of Lowry getting lost in the shuffle and him not necessarily being assertive enough to, to go and want that and, and hunt out the ball given that he's a power forward and, and needs someone to pass him that ball? I think there's a chance. Um, I hope it's a small one, but... I think uh, 
I just I feel like that's kind of what they're focusing on in terms of a theme this preseason um, and like training camp. I just I really hope maybe to a point where it's uh, making me become a little naive about this, but I really think that they'll not let that happen. I think that if it happens, if they ignore Markkanen, that's definitely on his teammates and not on the coaching staff. One thing that I really liked watching about last year is that pretty much every single game, or maybe every other game, Hoiberg would have some new play or wrinkle that he would add to set up Markkanen. I mean, he was such a focal point when he was out on the floor. The coaching staff realizes how talented this guy is, and if you... I mean, if you watched him last year, he was just the, one of the only bright spots on the Bulls. Uh, I think they're going to do everything in their power to get him the ball in the spots that he needs. And if he's not getting the ball, then that is because his teammates are like not following the coach's orders. So hopefully that doesn't happen. And I think like that's one of the reasons why you might see them not pick up Parker's option. Uh, if he's really getting in the way of Markkanen's development. Like, I th- I think they realize that he's that important, that Larry is. Yeah, look, I think they're all good points. And to your point, Stefan, I mean, the Bulls were putting Larry in, not only in pick and roll, but he he was the ball handler at times. So to your point, they were trying to get him in as much action as they possibly could. So I, I agree with you that that the coaching staff realizes how good Larry Markkanen is. But I, I, maybe this is just me reading into it too much, but I get the, I get this sentiment that if for whatever reason Levine and Parker don't necessarily buy in and it, they don't necessarily include Larry into this this the offensive shuffle, that somehow that's a that's an issue for or a black mark for, against Hoiberg, but I don't necessarily agree with that for the exact reasons you sort of outlined there. But it, it's something that I'm concerned with, and I hopefully it doesn't happen. But it's obviously something we'll be monitoring as the season progresses forward. But we've talked Larry marketing. There's not much more to talk about it. We all expect him to be very good at the least. So. Um, here's to hoping that is certainly the case. But let's talk Wendell Carter Jr. Lowry's hopefully his future front court uh, partner for the next ten or so years. And I guess this relates to Lowry Market in this next question anyway. But has Lowry Markkinen's unexpected success in year one spoiled us as Bulls fans into what our expectation is for a player like Wendell Carter Jr., who probably will be coming off the bench? I know the Bulls have said that there's a open competition for that starting spot, but I would I would still assume Robin Lopez is the starter come opening night. But given how good Lowry Markkinen was in year one, are we writing in or assuming too much for Wendell Carter Jr. in year one? I think there's a real possibility that that's true uh the average value for a number seven pick markinen has way exceeded that already i looked it up uh last year i think it was around like career averages of like 11 points and six rebounds or something like that so you you're usually just getting like a rotation player uh in that spot or maybe like a you know a fringe starter something like that and Wendell Carter, obviously, we are expecting much more from him based on how amazing his summer league was, how strong this rookie class looks in general. So I don't know, maybe that's a little bit of unfair expectations placed on him. But yeah, Markkanen definitely looks like the real deal. And uh, I expect big things from Carter this year, too. I mean, I think you look at what Wendell did well in summer league, and I think a lot of that can carry over. Obviously, he's really good at stepping over from the weak side block and blocking shots. I think that's something that you can 
probably safely rely on him being good at at the NBA level. I think, um, you know, he they weren't really doing much with him offensively. Like he was getting a lot of short rolls and and kind of making passes. I think that's something that he can probably do. I think he actually might end up being one of the better passers of that group, um, of that kind of core group that they talk about. Um, and I think the jump shot is going to be a work in progress, but I think uh, it seems like it could be legit. So um, obviously Markkanen was just a smashing success, um, but you have to look at each player individually and um, and their trajectory. I think, you know, Markkanen was thrust into the starting role after the whole Nico Bobby thing last year. Um, that's not going to be the case with Wendell, so that could change his trajectory. Um, that could help him. That could hurt him. I'm not sure. But I think uh, some of the stuff that we saw in Summer League, I'm I'm comfortable with saying that that will carry over, and that gives me uh, some pretty solid faith that he'll be a solid NBA player. Well, I mean, we're still in preseason, so there's a chance that uh, Bobby Portis's fists get a little bit loose here, so maybe <laughs> maybe history does repeat itself. But it's an interesting sliding doors moment because who knows what the Bulls have for this rebuild going forward if Bobby Portis and Nikola Mirotic never get into it. I would assume Larry Markkinen plays at some point, but he's not playing 30 minutes a night if that incident never happens from the start. Either Portis or Mirotic is likely starting. And Larry probably is the fourth or fifth big in that situation, probably at least for the start of the season. So it's just interesting to think what could have been if Portis never really hit Mirotic, not only for those two players, but what that means for Larry Markkinen and how we view him now. But then carrying that forward to Wendell Carter Jr. Because that did happen and Larry was thrust into that starting spot and was given 30 minutes pretty much from the get-go every night and was able to to produce a season where he had 15 points and seven rebounds. I'm getting this sentiment that some fans are, are hoping for 25, 30 minutes from Wendell Carter Jr. and and really producing at a similar rate to what we saw from Larry Markin in last season. But I don't necessarily think it's, it's something to lean on. So I, I, I'm... I guess at the moment I'm just I'm just trying to flag some um, some caution in terms of expectations. But given rotations, what, do you think Wendell Carter Jr. and Markner will be sharing a lot of minutes together? Uh, specifically, if for whatever reason they're not necessarily starting together, so do you think that will be something the coaching staff will be trying to emphasize playing Markner and Wendell Carter Jr. a lot together? And do you think management will be mandating that that needs to happen for X amount of minutes per game? I just think they're definitely going to play together. I don't think uh, Carter will start the season. Um, I think that as as comfortably as they feel about Markman being one of the most important pieces on the team, I think they can kind of tell that Carter's going to be in that same tier. I would expect plenty of Dunn, Levine, Parker, Markman, Carter minutes. Um, I Like I said, I don't think that'll be the starting five, but I think... Uh, that's the core they want to develop, so they'll definitely play together. Yeah, they definitely should play those two guys together. Um, obviously, those guys are the future of the Bulls. Uh, I talked to Hoiberg a little bit off the record about that combination uh, during Summer League, and he was already really pumped up. He was already talking about plays that he was planning on running with those two. This is prior to the Bulls signing Jabari Parker, so maybe those plans have changed a little bit with the rotation. Maybe... Uh, Parker's going to be playing some four and uh, bench lineups with Carter. Not really sure, but I know that Hoiberg definitely has some ideas on how to utilize those two guys and 
he he agrees that like those those two just fit so well together. I mean, it would be such a waste not to play them at least um you know one string and kind of experiment and see what they can do in the future. Yeah, and and look, that's probably going to be the highlight of the season and th- these two guys are the key pieces going forward, so you know I think most fans want to see these guys playing as many minutes as possible together. But I just wonder if politics will be in play here. We've got Robin Lopez still on the ro- on the roster. We can't forget about Bobby Portis. He wants an extension. How does that all or how does that all sort of play itself out? We talked about Jabari Parker before potentially being a four, and if that's the case, then that shuffles the front court rotation. So it could get interesting, but we'll see what happens with Wendell Carter Jr. But Markkinen and Wendell Carter Jr., that pairing does seem to make a lot of sense, but let's transition from that to two guys that may not make as much sense, and I'm referring to Zach Levine and Jabari Park. We can sort of lump these two guys together because I think a lot of their strengths and a lot of their weaknesses or concerns, we they, they share them, I guess, so we, we can probably touch on these two guys together as well as an interesting time. We're running quite long here, but let's talk Zach Levine and Jabari Parker and we know we're not necessarily expecting much from these two on defense, but of the two, who do you think has more of a chance to get it together defensively? <laughs> Neither of them. It's just I think it's going to be a matter of like who wants to try to be a defender more. I think uh, like we've seen Zach on the ball, and he certainly says this that he's like a better defender when he's engaged on the ball. I think there have been moments in Jabari's career where he's done the same. Um, but I think like Zach just signed this, you know, $90 million deal and he's heard all the criticism and he's kind of addressed it in a more palatable way than Parker has since he's become a bull. Uh, so I guess I'll go with him. Yeah. Well, I think you nailed it on the head when you said, uh, it's whichever one tries harder. You look at the quotes that these two guys have said in the off season. It's like really unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Levine, at least Levine said uh, yesterday during media day that uh, defense is important and he wants to be a better defender. He was saying the right things. And then you look at what Parker said, which is just totally ridiculous, uh, that like defense isn't important and they pay players to score the ball. Well, guess what? This guy is possibly going to be a free agent again after this season. Like, what is he going to spend more of his energy on, offense or defense, when he just got paid? 20 million dollars uh for playing no defense for three years in milwaukee i mean he's he's gonna be devoting more of his energy to offense again to try to get the bulls to um extend that second year option or to get a new deal in free agency so i think that i'm pretty low on both guys defensively overall but if i had to pick one i'd probably pick uh, levine to uh, improve yeah, and for the record, I, I agree. And the reason for that is, you know, assuming both try, I think Levine has more of a chance given I think he's a natural two guard, whereas Parker, if he's going to be forced into guarding threes, then that could get problematic. Even if he's trying, it could, they could just be guys on the perimeter that are just too fast for him or and he can't necessarily navigate through that. So it, he's probably at more of a disadvantage because I think the Bulls are trying to push him into a position that he may not necessarily be. So... Even if he wants to be a better defender and he's more committed to doing so, if he's stuck with guarding on the perimeter and guarding threes and not necessarily on the block against fours, where he's probably better suited, then he's probably got less of a chance to uh, to get it get it together defensively in that sense. So I'll say Levine too because I think theoretically at least that makes the most sense to me. So let's talk about Parker and the fact that 
the Bulls are trying to develop him into a small forward. I've talked about how I think he's more of a power forward. Obviously, time will tell how he sort of transitions to being a small a small forward. The Bulls are going to be trying to force this the issue on this one, given the uh, the current construction of the roster. But what are your expectations in terms of minutes being played at varying positions? Whilst whilst we can expect Parker to start at small forward, I don't think he will be playing 100% of his minutes at small forward, given he's never done that ever. So what, what do you think his minute split will be between, say, small forward and power forward? And, and what do you think they should be? And does it even really matter at this point? I think uh, he's going to be playing the majority of his minutes at small forward just because of the log jam that there is at, at power forward already. I mean, I think ideally you'd like to push Bobby up to uh, kind of being a stretch five. Um, you've also got Wendell Carter. You've got Robin Lopez. Um, Lowry, I'd like to see play some minutes at the five too. So, I mean, all those guys are going to have to play heavy minutes. Um, so I, my guess is that Parker would be playing like between 60 and 70% of his minutes at the three, probably closer to 70. And then he, he definitely will get some time, I think, uh, with maybe more of a defensive minded center, uh, at the power forward spot. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good estimate, Will, of uh, minutes distribution, I mean, he's going to be bad defensively at the small forward. He, Mark, you mentioned it before. He's just not fast enough to stay with a lot of these wings. As far as the offensive concerns, though, like I'm not, I don't think I'm quite as worried about it as you are. If you look at the system that he played at in Milwaukee, the Bucks were always one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league. He had to share the court with Giannis, who we know is like the, the one weakness in his game is he can't really shoot from outside and had to play a lot of small forward minutes in those lineups. So I think he will have a little bit better spacing playing alongside Levine and Markkanen with the Bulls. And uh, he's such a dynamic offensive player. Like, I don't think people quite realize, like, how talented this guy is on offense. Uh, he doesn't have, like, great shot selection at times, but he's just a very interesting player to watch. His footwork is very unique. He gets very, uh, just very unusual uh, shots, uh, unusual ability to go around guys to get to the rim. So I think it'll be fun to watch at the very least. And I, th- I think he'll be okay offensively. I actually really agree with that point, And I wanted to reiterate that like offensively, I think Jabari is going to be fine at the three, but really when you talk about defensive or when you talk about positions, it's about who you can guard, who you, who you check on defense. Um, offensively, you know, he shot 38% on threes last year in only 31 games. But um, I mean, that's, that's good. I think he'll be able to, you know, get, into guys get his like mid-range iso shots off when he needs to but also kind of stretch the floor out from the corners if he needs to so i think he'll be okay on offense i just think the defense and the footwork and the speed stuff that you guys both mentioned um is really what's gonna hurt him and this bulls team yep all good points and and, and i totally agree particularly around offense he should be able to there should be a way to, to make it work on offense at least but Thinking about Levine and Parker and their combination, do you think it's something Hoiberg needs to think about in terms of staggering these two guys? And look, we're hopeful that they can play together and play a lot of minutes together and hopefully close games together. But during, say, quarters one to three, do you think it's something the Bulls really seriously need to entertain in terms of staggering the minutes of these two players? So maybe an example of that potentially would be Jabari Parker subbing out early of the first quarter and getting some more minutes against the bench units and with the second unit to to give that second unit a bit more scoring, which it probably doesn't have a, a lot of at the moment outside of Bobby Porter. So do you think the balls should stagger these two and do you think they will? 
I think they absolutely should. I think you need to be careful about putting uh, Levine, Valentine, Portis, and Parker on the floor together, um, or even like two or three of those guys. I guess Levine and Parker are going to be starting together, so that's kind of scary. But um, yeah, I think he just needs to be careful about who he plays him with, but I think in some capacity they're definitely going to have to stagger, um, and I think that will contribute to this idea of um, shot distribution and kind of getting these both of these guys scoring chances in all the ways that they need it and want it. Yeah, I think they should stagger them too. Just from the defensive perspective, um, that they're going to be so bad. I mean, those two guys on the wing, it's I could I could not imagine a worse combination. So they really might be the two like worst high uh, volume in terms of minutes defenders on the perimeter in the league. Yeah, and Jabari wouldn't be that. I mean, he'd still be really bad, but he wouldn't be that bad as a power forward. Mark, as you mentioned, like he's not—he's not a bad post defender. He's a pretty strong guy, but he just—he's going to be such a disaster on the wing. Uh, as far as will they stagger them? I think that they will midway through the season when they realize that they need to. But early on, I mean, I think management definitely has a very heavy hand in how these rotations work. If you just look at last year, like all the stuff that they did. Um, so they're going to want to play Parker a lot. Uh, they're going to want to play Levine a lot. So I think that Hoiberg is going to feel that pressure where he need he needs to play those two guys. He needs to play a starting group uh, quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. And I think what, another thing that can make this whole pairing work between these two is 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 maybe I think Parker can be a good off ball player. I'm not necessarily sure about Levine, but I think given Levine's build and his ability to shoot off the dribble and, and, and to shoot off cut, coming off screens, I wonder if we're going to see more of a role for Levine working off ball and curling around screens and, and less having the ball in his hands to, to get his own score. But, but I, I guess working hard off ball in the same way that Ray Allen did, the same way Clay Thompson did, where these guys are running all around the court to get open, uh, getting ready to catch and shoot, and, and that being Levine's role in, in that sense. So he's still getting his shot attempts, but isn't necessarily pounding the ball. So I, I guess my question is, do, do you think it's possible that for all this to work, that Levine can sort of adopt that off-ball method in becoming a guy that sort of runs off screens and, and gets his offense through that through that vicinity, I guess? Yeah, I I definitely think he can. Like, if you, if you look at what he did in Minnesota, he was the third guy there. Uh, Towns had the highest usage, then it was Wiggins, then it was Levine, and uh, Ricky Rubio really made that work. He was... Those two guys had amazing chemistry. I don't think that Dunn and Levine have that same chemistry. Maybe they can get there. They're going to have to. But Levine was also, Will, you mentioned it earlier, Levine was a way more efficient player in Minnesota. And I looked at his NBA Wowie numbers when it was just him and uh, Wiggins and Towns were off the court. And Levine's numbers basically looked like they did last year with the Bulls. I mean, he's just not a good player when you uh, raise his uh, usage up to where he's dominating the ball so i think it makes a lot of sense for him to play more off the ball and yeah that should be the plan going forward i think that's an easy way to like improve guys efficiency is just like um give them better spots not not force them into so many tough shots not forcing them i mean he was doing it willingly but um just finding better opportunities for those guys and i think that's going to have to be the mentality for both him and parker so that guys like Markkanen and Wendell and Dunn have more of a chance to uh, be a part of the offense. Yeah, and we talked about want and sacrifice before, and particularly using those words when describing the the defense, for example. But it, it's true on offense as well. And 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 Levine 
I guess, buying into that being his role or part of his role or more of his role. I think that he'll need to want to be that player. Uh, I have concerns about whether he wants to be that guy, whether he wants to be up top creating in pick and roll like a James Harden or like these elite lead guards and, and whether Levine sees himself in that mold, I guess. So that's the concern I have with that with that, with uh, employing that type of offense around or with Zach Levine, but I think he definitely has the potential to do that. So again, thinking about what we talked about before, whether that's on Hoiberg if it doesn't happen or if it's on the players, I, I would I'd probably be leaning more towards the player in that instance. But I hope he wants to do that because I think he can be very good in that role. But let's transition away from Zach Levine and Jabari Parker. We spent a lot of time talking about the main players. I quickly want to touch on the bench because the bench is kind of interesting as well. And there's a lot of storylines on this bench as well. But the two main guys coming off the off the bench are Bobby Portis and Denzel Valentine, who both have, I guess, their positives and negatives that they will bring to this squad. But I guess my question is in relation to these two is what their roles will be this season and whether that will meet their expectations or what they were hoping for. So if you think about before the draft and before free agency, both these guys probably had hopes or expectations of being a starter at some point of this season. Denzel Valentine definitely voiced that. And whilst Bobby Portis has embraced being a sixth man, given that the Bulls have added Jabari Parker, Chandler Hutchinson, and now Wendell Carter Jr., which one of these guys of the two do you think is going to have the chance of seeing his minutes or his role being reduced to some of these new guys that have come through? I think it's going to be both of them um, as far as which one will suffer more. Um, I think it's going to be Portis. Like there's just such a huge crunch in that front court. Uh, I think the Bulls should very, very strongly consider trading Portis. Uh, He just doesn't, he's, he's a good player good offensive player they've done a great job of developing him but he doesn't fit at all with uh, what they're trying to do and he has like pretty good value in the league i think they could get something good back for him plus the free agent dollars that he's going to command next summer they can better allocate that money to balance out this roster there's some really good uh decently young wings in this free agent class so i think the bulls can get one of those with that portis money um yeah that's that's what i think i think you know, both Portis and Valentine have uh, some very similar flaws as well as uh, skills. And I think, you know, defensively, neither of them has really picked up NBA defense, um, you know, athletically, as you mentioned before, Stefan. Uh, they aren't really on that level where they can kind of turn into, you know, elite defenders or even, you know, good or passable. Um, but they do both have skills that I think, if correctly utilized, can be an asset. Like Denzel Valentine's ability to pull up for three, that can definitely be something that is valuable. I think he's can be a good playmaker. He oftentimes gets a little uh, overly flashy. Um, and I think Portis, if, you know, if he kind of reads his role a little bit better, I mean, he was talking about that uh, yesterday uh, after practice, that he kind of needs to focus more on passing out of double teams and stuff like that. Like, I think there's, there are things that they can do where if they improve that on top of the skills that they have, they could both be effective players. Um, but I think like you mentioned, Stefan, it's just a matter of like the pecking order and who else is ahead of them. Um, I think probably, you know, just a five man, big man rotation. If you include uh, Jabari Parker into that is just kind of a lot. 
Um, obviously, Robin Lopez probably isn't around past this year if he even makes it that far. So, you know, maybe they do want to keep Portis for that. But I just I don't really see that role as being super effective for this team. Um, just like a score heavy big man and kind of like the Maurice Spates type of role. Um, Valentine, I think, could get supplanted by uh, Chandler Hutchinson. But for now, he's kind of just fighting with Justin Holiday for minutes. I think that was kind of a reason why they let David Nwaba walk. Um, so I guess I just, the value of having a wing is more important than it is to have a score heavy, um, defense, defensive negative, uh, big man. And so I guess I would agree with you and say, uh, Portis is going to be, you know, the one who is probably a little bit more frustrated with his role, despite how happy he seems to be about it right now. Yeah, and October 15, I think, is the key date that we have to keep in mind here. That's when the Bulls and Portis, I believe, can agree to an extension to, or at least that's the deadline. So we'll see what, what happens up until that point. But, I mean, if they if they sign into a new new deal, I'll take that as a sign that they want to keep him around for the years beyond. But uh, it'll be an interesting, I guess, story to watch throughout the season. But I, I guess beyond that as well, we're just thinking about Portis and Valentine, but they are in a very similar position, even though they're not necessarily playing the same position. They're both going to be competing with a rookie and they're both going to be competing with a veteran who may or may not be on the team past the deadline. So for Valentine, it's Holiday and, and Hutchinson, as you mentioned, Will. And then for Portis, it's Lopez and um, Carter Jr. So particularly if, if Lopez is moved to the bench, let's say, uh, is Portis and Lopez competing for minutes at center? So it's going to be an interesting situation. I, I don't necessarily know who is going to be more frustrated and who is more likely to be, but I think there's that potential for one of them to be disappointed in, in how their season sort of progresses. Again, thinking about what we talked about earlier in terms of agendas and contracts and those sorts of things, it could play that could play a part in it too. But moving on to the next question, and this is something I just still can't understand why why it is the case, but... I don't understand how a team like the Bulls, who had so much success in, well, pretty much ever since they drafted Derrick Rose, they had so much success based around or building a team around a, a dominant point guard. So if any team should understand the need of having depth at the point guard position, it should be the Chicago Bulls, given the level of success they had with Derrick Rose. But I guess I don't understand why the bench is so weak at point guard beyond Chris Dunn. So just wanted to get your opinion on why you think they've gone into this season or going into this season with uh, the the point guard rotation being what it is, Cameron Payne, and uh, I guess will be the backup, Ryan Archidiacono and Derek Walton Jr. I guess will be fighting for that third position. But beyond that, there isn't another point guard. I'm assuming that means Levine and maybe Valentine or even Hutchinson will be playing minutes at point guard. But... Just generally, what are your thoughts about the point guard position and, and are you as perplexed about it as I am? I definitely agree with you, Mark. I think that's something that I was curious about last year. Um, in the middle of the season, I was thinking that they should go after you know, a veteran point guard like Jameer Nelson. They actually traded for him with uh, Omer Sheik and the Nika Miritich trade and then waived him immediately. I think that like that kind of mentorship role could be really valuable for these guys. They've got a big man... Uh, kind of mentor in Robin Lopez. They've got a wing guy in Justin Holiday who's won a championship, who is a really good locker room presence. Um, but the point guard is, you know, traditionally the one who's supposed to kind of command the floor. And I think they could, uh, that would be really helpful to some of these young guys. Um, I think the reason that they haven't done that is just because, you know, in the past they've had two or three guys that they've wanted to see, you know, if these, if these guys are NBA players, they had, 
uh, Jaron Grant last year, who they traded away to the Magic. Uh, Cameron Payne was coming back from this injury, and Chris Dunn. So, like, they just need to give these guys minutes. I think that's probably the reason. I think it goes back to this idea of optics, too. They gave up so much to get Payne, um, gave up a lot to get Chris Dunn. And Paxson has said in previous years that with young guys, you don't want to give up on them too early. You have to be absolutely sure that they're not going to pan out. I think that's the wrong approach to take. Um, I think you need to gamble a little bit more when you see that guys aren't working out. You know, playing time is a very valuable asset for a team. Those tryout spots, that's not something that you want to waste. So I think the Bulls should be cycling through more players at point guard and just trying to hit on somebody. Uh, yeah, and I mean, even behind pain, your your boy, Ryan Archdiakono, Mark. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think we all know that, like, you know, he's a scrappy guy. He works hard, but he's definitely not like a... He's never going to be a starter in the NBA, right? So... Just the fact that they they have Payne and Archdiakono, that's got to be like by far the worst backup point guard rotation in the league. It doesn't make any sense that they don't just try someone else, you know, take one of your two-way slots and sign a point guard. So it is, it is definitely frustrating. And the big concern is that Dunn isn't necessarily the most durable player going around and the way he plays the game, it's not unexpected if he was to miss 20 games or something of that nature given how how hard he goes on the court so you know we talked about earlier about Chris Dunn being important for the offense and potentially being a potential architect of the offense but if for whatever reason you've got to strip him out of the rotation because he's out for a couple weeks with an ankle injury for example and you insert uh, Cameron Payne in there for 20-25 minutes and then you have Archie Diakono or Derek Pop Jr. getting significant minutes as well that could really tank the bull season so even from that standpoint, if the, if the Bulls are wanting to get to, to, to chalk up wins here, I, I don't understand why they don't have a, a veteran point guard on the roster as a bit of a hit, hit emergency type button sort of thing, just so you don't have to rely on these guys for so many damn minutes. But I mean, that could be the reason why too, right? Like they were trying to tank last year. Maybe that's why they didn't have, <laughs> maybe that's why they allowed Cameron Payne to get all those minutes, right? Yeah, true, which I'm assuming they're not trying to tank now. So I guess I question why that's going to be the case going forward. But it's probably going to be something I'm going to be whinging about all year. I can sort of, I can see myself doing that all year. And uh, But look, maybe Cameron Payne continues to improve and maybe he shuts me up. But but we shall see. But let's talk about a guy that's probably rarely mentioned. And if he is ever mentioned, it's never in a positive, a positive tone anymore, at least not now, not since he signed his contract. I want to talk about Cristiano Felicio and the fact that he's probably going to be buried on the bench even further than what he previously was. We've talked about the the depth in the front court and the fact that, you know, potentially Jabari Park is a foul forward and that just adds to the depth in the front court. But what what does this mean for a guy like Cristiano Felicio who's making about $8 million a season? Is there any chance for him at all to to find a way to to make uh, or to give the Bulls some sort of reasonable value for his contract given given the money he signed for and the fact that he's probably going to be lost in the shuffle. Is there any chance this guy can get back into the rotation this season? I feel like they kind of have to try to give him some minutes just to see if they can rehab his value at all to try to move him. Uh, but I think, you know, in terms of the future plans, he's certainly not a part of him anymore. Yeah, I think it all goes back to fit. You know, I'm a really big believer that players need to find the right situation for them to be successful if you're not like a superstar level player like uh earlier i probably sounded pretty harsh on chris dunn it's not that i don't think chris dunn is a good player i just don't think that he's a good fit for what the bulls are trying to do i think he could be better in other situations it's the same thing with 
uh, Jabari Parker. I just think that uh, with a guy like Felicio, with what the Bulls are trying to do right now, they're trying to play with more versatile players, try to do more switching. Those are things that Felicio cannot do. He's a very limited player, but what he does, he does well. And if you try to switch him on to guards, he's just going to get totally roasted. So I think that uh, you should just think of him as dead salary, as a trade chip. Uh, and I, I'm sure the Bulls would be very happy to move on from him if they could find a trade partner. And I think he could be okay on a different team. But for this year, I don't envision him really doing anything. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. And I was somewhat being facetious given given how far, I guess, he's, the, the trajectory of his career has sort of gone down I, at, at some point. I don't know about you guys, but I was thought of, I thought there was potential for him to be a, a, a potential long-term starter for the Bulls at center. And that was the hope that I had when they signed him to that deal. But that quickly went um, went south very quickly, I guess. So we'll see what happens with Felicio. But yeah, to your point, I'm not necessarily too hopeful of his career going forward in Chicago. But a bit of a deep cut here. Uh, and... Now with, I guess, David Nwaba gone, uh, the Bulls don't have a lot of defense on the wing. They don't have that real energy on the wing, at least at the moment. So a guy that I'm really excited about is, is Raleigh Olkins. And I don't expect him to get much minutes early in the season or potentially potentially at all. But do you, do you think during the season at all, at some point he'll get a fair shake at the rotation? And do you think he has a chance to play many games this season? Or do you think that he's gonna, just going to be a completely project-type player where he, he probably won't play much at all this year? So he was a two-way guy, and two-way players can only play with the team for, I believe, 45 days. So if he does come up, it'll be kind of like intentional because of an injury, because of, um, you know, somebody getting traded or something like that. Um, so I don't expect to see a lot of him, certainly at the start of the season. Um, I think a lot of the reason why they signed him, obviously he's got like some good, um, you know, he's got a good build, he's got good length, he's kind of a potential 3 and D type of player, as you mentioned, with good energy. But I think, you know, he's played at Arizona with Lowry. I think uh, a lot of the reason why they brought him in was because of that to kind of help uh, Lowry, who I think struggled a little bit at times with uh, the social aspect of being in the NBA. Yeah, I don't really know a ton about Alkins, to tell you the truth. Uh, I've watched a little bit of his tape, but I think that the fact that the Raptors were really high on him, they tried to sign him to a contract before the Bulls, but he had some problems with his agent, which allowed the Bulls to swoop in there. That's definitely a good sign that other teams was, were interested. I mean, he was undrafted, though. So um, I think that, you know, a two-year player, he's still pretty young. He's just going to be a project. He's going to spend most of the year in the G League, and maybe he'll play some spot minutes. I mean, Hoiberg has gone to those guys in the past. You know, Blakeney and Archidiakono played a lot last year. But... um I, yeah, I don't really think he's going to be a huge part of the rotation or anything. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm probably still, still yearning for David Dwarber, I guess, and I'm still sad that he's gone. So I'm, I was hopeful that someone like Alkins could maybe fill that void. But I look, I totally agree. He probably won't. But there's just me trying to be an optimist of sorts and trying to find a way to get a, a bit of a Nwaba clone into the rotation. But I, I think you both are right that we won't be seeing too much of Rawley Alkins this season. And moving on, though, I, I was going, I didn't necessarily want to bring up the defense. We've, we've sort of integrated that into our conversation already anyway. But given that there has been some news about the Bulls potentially moving away 
from that switch uh, switch based defensive system that they were sort of I guess rumored or suggesting that they would be implementing. I, I wanted to quickly talk defense just generally because I know we've we've talked about it more loosely when we've talked about guys like Levine, Parker, etc. But let's just focus on defense for a little bit. But I want to get your opinion on the Bulls initially at least, going to that switch-based defense and, and what your thoughts on that was. But now that they're potentially moving away from that and going more towards what they were doing last season, more traditional-type defense, what what are your general thoughts about them doing that or, or initially going to the switch-based system but now moving away from it? I'm curious, Mark, where did you uh, hear that they were going away from that? Because I had not come across that. I'm pretty sure it was from Cody Westerlin today. I believe he had a tweet suggesting that, um, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe, Will, you can um, back me up on that if you've seen it too. But I, I believe I read that today. Uh, Fred, after practice yesterday, mentioned that that was something that they were experimenting with in Summer League and that um, it was going to be more of a drop, pick, and roll type of coverage this year for the most part. And for me, I mean, I think you can't really just have one kind of defense anymore in the NBA. You have to be able to do a lot of things. Um, I think that switch-based defenses are probably a little bit more risky if you don't have the personnel that can execute. But um, I think the upside is much higher. It allows you to defend teams like the Warriors or the Rockets, the teams that are competing for championships here. Obviously, the Bulls are not at that level. But, um, you know, I think there's merit in still trying it. Um, and I think, you know, I tweeted this yesterday, but, you know, Zach was talking about it at Media Day, how he kind of loses interest in uh, defending when the ball is swung away from his man or he gets kind of lazy. And I think, like, yes, it's more responsibility, more for him to have to focus on and engage with. But if he's constantly, you know, required to figure that stuff out and be engaged with the defense, then that could actually benefit him um, if he's willing to put in the mental energy. Uh, So I don't know. I mean, I think they should definitely try it. I think they still will, but um, I think, you know, the, the drop pick and roll defense is definitely something that's easier to pick up, easier to teach. Um, So I think that's probably why they're, they're moving that way. Well, it also depends a lot on who the big man is out there, right? Like they were never going to switch with Robin Lopez. We should probably get into just like brief descriptions of what these different pick and roll coverages are. Uh, in case your listeners don't know, like dropping is what you typically see with Lopez, where he just sinks deep down into the paint and waits for uh, the ball handler or his role man to come towards him. What the Bulls were going to do is switching is pretty obvious. You just like switch, big man switches on the guard. And then what they did last year with the bench units is they did a lot of blitzing uh, where they would double team the ball handler and leave the role man open uh, in the short roll and just let let that guy try to make plays, uh, try to rotate over. So when the Bulls say they're going back to last year's defense, I think that's a little bit uh, not not quite accurate because they were doing a lot of this blitzing, and it was terrible. I mean, it didn't work at all. This is the reason why Jason Kidd basically got fired is because he was so adamant that he wanted the Bucks to blitz, and they were like one of the only teams that did it, and they just got torn apart. As soon as they switched to a more normal defense under Prunty, they were like immediately better. So I think the idea of dropping, blitzing, that's smart. They want to do, uh, if they want to just drop and pick and roll, then that's fine too. But as long as they go away from what they were doing last year, I think it's fine. It also depends on who you're playing against, right? Like against the Warriors, against the Rockets, you you have to switch or they will just eat you alive. Um, and they still might do that anyway. They probably would. But, um, you know, 
against teams with weaker ball handlers, like sagging back in the in the pick and roll defense, and like having Robin Lopez kind of back up and let the point guard either shoot like a push shot from just inside the free throw line or try to shoot over him at the rim. Like that's not the end of the world either. It's just, I I think you need to have both if you want to compete at a very high level. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And that was going to be my next question or you alluded to my next question is, is it feasible to to have both off? Oh, sorry, both defensive schemes within the one game, let alone you know, or from one rotation to the next rotation, depending on who's at center, let alone game to game or month to month sort of thing. Is is it possible to really change your defense that quickly? And particularly for a young team that's learning one scheme, I guess. If I think about Wendell Carter Jr., how much more additional pressure does that add to him? You know, trying to learn how to switch in the NBA, but then also maybe having to learn how to be that drop sort of type center where he sort of protects the rim. Do you think it's feasible for this roster, given the youth and the inexperience that they have on defense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most teams do that. So that they might not use one defense very often, but they're going to practice all of them. And yeah, they'll. I think they'll break out all of them from time to time. What I really learned from... Uh, Jim Boylan, the associate head coach and also kind of defensive coordinator this summer in Vegas, was that they're kind of looking at it as more of a program than just like a year-to-year league or a year-to-year kind of team. So I think they're going to have a baseline level of being able to do both. And as the season progresses, they'll add stuff onto it and really treat this like more of a college program where they're like, building for the future as opposed to just trying to get there this year mm. yeah i mean that's a good point and look it, it is somewhat like a college a college roster given the the youthfulness of this roster and and maybe they do more switch stuff once robin lopez and justin holiday maybe those guys are maybe traded at the deadline or or uh released and, and they move on to different teams maybe at that point or at that juncture maybe the switch scene as uh, the switching scheme becomes more relevant or prevalent in that situation so uh, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to monitor that situation throughout the season. But thinking more holistically, and again, we've talked a lot of de- about defense, so I'll, I'll finish the defense part on this question. But do, do you think there's any realistic way that this team can be top half or in the top half in the league on defense at all? Do you, do you think that's possible at all, or, or is it going to be another season where they're sort of bottom five again? No, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's emphatic. I think it's possible, but they would just have to be extraordinarily lucky. I mean, there's a lot of variance in these defensive numbers, just like teams happen to miss shots. Yeah. So, um, like fundamentally, I, I don't really think they can be top half, but maybe they get lucky, you know, on the on the right end of three point variance and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's always that chance. I think you know, defensive field goal percentage allowed is not a very it's a very fluky stat, um, and you know, year to year. It just it doesn't correlate, and so maybe you know they were very low last year. Maybe they are better at it this year. But I mean, you look at who's on the floor. Obviously, you've got a very positive defender at the point of attack in Chris Dunn. Uh, Lopez is fine. I, I wouldn't say he's like a top half defensive center in the league. Uh, I think Wendell Carter could be a plus, but it's still very difficult for rookie centers to be able to impact the game at a super high level. Um, you take away David Nwaba, you reduce the minutes of Justin Holiday, who was a fine defender. Um, Nika Miritich was a, 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 at least a neutral, if not a positive defender. I think he really does not get enough credit for that. Um, and then you add more minutes for Zach Levine, more minutes for Jabari Parker, who are two of the worst defenders in the league. 
and um, I think it's going to be worse. Yeah, and that and that's fair. And I guess the irony in all this is that Fred Hoiberg was brought in to be an offensive coach, but throughout his tenure here, I think the defense has sometimes been more impressive than the offense. So. Uh, it would be funny if somehow the, the, the Bulls managed to be a, a top-half defense this season whilst being poor on offense again. That would be quite amusing, but uh, look, I don't think that's going to happen. But look, look, maybe it happens. Who knows? Maybe maybe the Bulls surprise us on that end. But we're running long here, so I want to close out with some, um, some quick-fire questions and maybe some fun questions here. And let's start with this one. What's more likely to happen, um, Jabari Parker or Fred Hoiberg? Having a positive season to the point where they're returning next season. Who, who, who do you think is more likely to return next season, Jabari or Fred? I'm going to say Fred because he has a guaranteed year left on his contract. And I don't think that uh, Jerry Reinsdorf is going to be too happy about just wasting $5 million on that. I was going to say the same thing. But honestly, I think uh, both of them are going to be back. They're both plausible situations, but... I don't know that I, I could I could see a scenario where both could be at a crossroads so uh, towards the end of the season so I'll probably say Fred as well given given what you alluded to uh, Stefan the, the Bulls don't necessarily want to be wasting money on a coach sitting on the sideline whilst having to pay someone else but that that in, in that instance I'd probably just bring in Jim Boylan anyway but it, it'll be an interesting one and, and I'll, I'll be watching with interest in that situation anyway but we've talked roughly with these guys the next question that I have but. Who's more likely to be on a new team post the trade deadline, Robin Lopez or Justin Holiday? I'll go Holiday. Um, I think he's on a much more palatable contract. He is expiring. He is a skill set that makes a lot more sense for the NBA, and a contender would recognize that. Like I could see the Rockets uh, being interested in his services. Something, some team like that who kind of likes three and D wings. Um, Lopez, I think is just more valuable to the Bulls than he would be to any other team. He is making like $14 million this year. I just don't think a kind of old-school center like him would really command much value. I feel like they'd kind of have to... I mean, teams are starting to view cap space as more of an asset, but I don't think the Bulls would be willing to take on cap space long-term in order to get off of him. And I think they really value the mentorship that he brings. So I'll go Holiday. I don't really know how easy it's going to be to trade either one of these guys. I mean, we've, we recognize their value. We see that they were pretty solid contributors last year, but the Bulls tried to trade them last year and didn't really have any takers. So I think maybe a more feasible option for them to get off the team is um, through the buyout route. This is something that uh, Nate Duncan talked about on his Chicago Bulls preview, which Kind of got me thinking, and yeah, it kind of makes sense that maybe the Bulls would try to buy them out just to do them a favor. And of those two, Holiday makes less money, so I think he might be the better buyout candidate. So I'm going with Holiday. Yeah, look, I agree. And and given Robin Lopez has that sweet new goatee going around, I, I think it's probably important that the Bulls keep him around from a morale perspective as well. So I, I think Justin Holiday is probably the the most likely one to be gone given, you know, he probably fits more where the NBA is going anyway. So I, I don't expect him to be here beyond the deadline. So I agree with you guys. But the last question in this in, in this series of uh, more likelies, what, what do you think is more likely, a, a playoff berth or a bottom three record? So that's a good one. Um, yeah, I think they're pretty close actually, but I'll go, you know what? I'll go with an optimistic answer. I've been pessimistic enough on this this podcast. I'll say I'll say a playoff <laughs> berth. I hate 
to uh, disagree with you, which is a rare occurrence if you ever listen to our show. But I think I'll go bottom three. Not because I don't think they could be close to a playoff berth. I just think that you know the defense is going to really, really hold them back. Um, and I think there's just like pretty much no way you can get into playoffs being that bad at defense. Even though LeBron is out of the East, I still see so many teams ahead of them. Um, I think they'll be way more fun and exciting and it's nice to not have to deal with any of the drama anymore, but I still think it's more likely that they are a bottom three record. Um, and I also don't necessarily think that they will be. I just think that that's more likely. Yeah. I think, I think both are very unlikely They're I mean, they're probably just going to finish somewhere in the middle. Right. But yeah. And that's why I put that question together. Cause I, I don't, I, I'm not assuming either scenario happens. Uh, I would not expect the Bulls to make the playoffs and I'd be very surprised if they are a bottom three team. They're t- clearly not going to be trying to be a bottom three team, but I don't know. I'm going to stay on brand here and I'm going to say bottom three record is probably more likely of those two situations. I, I hope it's not the case, but of the two, if I had to pick one, it's probably bottom three. And all it takes is maybe one or two injuries, particularly to someone like Chris Dunn, who I mentioned before, I have a lot of concerns about the point guard rotation. And if Dunn was to be out for a good chunk of the season, then I'd be concerned what the, about what that means for the rest of the roster and how it flows. So I'll say I'll say bottom three is more likely, but to Will's point, I don't think it's going to happen anyway. But that pretty much brings us to the end of the show, guys. It's been a long preview. I appreciate you sticking around for the, for this long. I think we've pretty much touched on everything, um, the least that I can think of at, at three in the morning in my time anyway. But uh, before we get off, I, I wanted to get a, a bit of a prediction or a final prediction in terms of how you think the team will do record-wise this season. And uh, I, I guess I'll hold you to it. <laughs> I don't necessarily think I will, but we'll have it on record. So, Stefan, let's start with you. What do you think their overall record will be at the close of the year? Before we say, can we say what the over-under is or what the most recent uh, yeah, line yeah, is? Yeah, good point. I think it's gone up to 30, if I'm not mistaken. I thought I read that somewhere, but I could be wrong. It, it opened at 27 and a half, and it's gone up. I don't know to what extent it has. It, it's uh, If the line moves, it's just... Um, a factor of like people are betting the over more so um we can assume it's somewhere around there uh as far as my prediction uh i think that it was really telling that yesterday at media day nobody <laughs> was willing to make a firm prediction from management to players the only person who gave a real prediction was i think it was chris dunn who said they were going to make the playoffs everybody else just said like oh well you know we just want to win more games than last year last year they won 27 games so I think that the improvements are probably going to be pretty minor in terms of wins, if anything at all. Uh, I'm going with 30 wins as my guess. Yeah, I'm going to one-up you there and go 31. I think, you know, we talk a lot about how this team looks compared to last year, but I think that there is a lot of room for, like, upward growth uh, just internally. Um, Obviously, this is going to require a lot of sacrifice and kind of... um, increased awareness about who these players are and what their role is. It's going to take a lot of things coming together at the right spots, but I think 31 and 51 seems like a fair guess. Well, I was going to say 33 and 49, but given Stefan, you've said 30, Will, you've said 31. I'm going to say 32 just to be an asshole. So um, (laughs) I'll say 32 and 50. Let's let's do that. So we're all on a similar page, but I think that would be a pretty good season, assuming develop the, 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 there's development of the players. If if they can win, you know, upwards of thirty games, and I think we can consider that a success. So, 
I don't know. I, th- I feel like we're being optimistic. Some may, may disagree, but I-, I think the Bulls can still have a very good season, if, even if they do have a, a bit of a losing record here. But well, we'll obviously see how that transpires over the coming months with, with Bulls basketball just around the corner. We've got preseason in less than a week. Nikola Mirotic and Anthony Davis heading back to Chicago and playing the Bulls in preseason. So that should be fun. But look, we'll, we'll obviously have more about that as the weeks progress. But guys, as I said, I appreciate you jumping on. Before you get away, um, I'm sure people already know where to follow your stuff. But in the, uh, in the rare event they don't, uh, just give a plug as to where people can follow you online. Yeah, you can follow me at Steph No S T E P H N O H, and Will and I both are writing bull stuff for the Athletic. So go give them a subscription. We also do a podcast together. We really actually don't do anything apart at this point. Like we <laughs> only guest on podcasts together and stuff like that. So uh, we do a podcast together uh, for the Athletic. You can check that out if you want. It's called Bull Court Press. Um, and my Twitter handle is at won't Gottlieb. And I also, in addition to writing at the athletic cover the warriors for bleacher report and some general NBA stuff too. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. Perfect. Good. Definitely go do that people. You probably already are, but if you're not, you would be silly not to. So boys, I appreciate you jumping on. Like I said, we went long, but I think we touched on pretty much everything that we needed to talk about. So I appreciate you making the time and, and I, I'm happy to do this crossover pod again. It was, it was a lot of fun. Always. I appreciate you, Mark. Uh, you know, your listeners might not know it, but you are always staying up crazy hours to give them quality content. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, you were saying thank <laughs> well, you to us for coming on, but it's like 3 o'clock in the morning for you. So thank you for staying up. No, that's okay, guys. Anything for our uh, beloved Chicago Bulls, as our friend CEB Fred would say. So you got to do it for the Bulls, and um, you got to do it for the podcast. So that's all good. But uh, again, thank you guys for coming on. Bulls fans, we'll probably be back in a week's time wrapping up, I, I guess, how the first week of, of preseason has gone. So be on the lookout for a new pod in a week or so, uh, in a week or so, and we'll see how the young Bulls are going in, in preseason. So be on the lookout for that, and I'll speak to you all very soon. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.